0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, October 22nd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. Joining me in the studio via Las Vegas is Certified Financial Planner Matt Frankel. Matt, you are out there in Las Vegas. How's everything going so far?
1: Good. We're just getting warmed up. It's only 9.30 in the morning here, so everybody's just getting their coffee behind me, and we're just getting going.
0: All right. Good deal. Well, on today's show, we are going to talk about UltraFICO. Uh, Matt, you're going to tell us a little bit about what's going on out there with Money 2020 and what you have coming up. Uh, of course, we'll tap into Twitter. We'll have one to watch. But we're going to start the show with Earnings Palooza. Earnings are in full Effect, full throttle now. We're getting lots of them all week long, and we've got a few companies here on the docket to talk about today. And I wanted to go ahead and just open up the conversation with PayPal, a company that all of our listeners are familiar with. Uh, I think it's a stock that you and I both own, or at least I own it. Do you own shares of PayPal, Matt?
1: I did. I actually sold it. I, I had eBay, so I acquired PayPal shares through eBay.
0: Very good. And um,
1: I got rid of it a couple years ago to buy Square, which turned out to be a pretty good move.
0: Not a bad move at all. <laughs> Not a bad move at all. Well, it's, yeah, uh, it's tough to argue with that one. <laughs> yeah. I, I thankfully own both. And I think that when you look at the quarter PayPal turned in, uh, you got to feel really good about what they're doing, right? I mean, this is really all about uh, the the dollars that are flowing through that network. And, and total payment volume for the company was up 24 to $143 billion. Uh, Engagement, which is essentially the number of transactions on a trailing 12-month basis, engagement was up. Uh, Mobile payment volume was $57 billion. Uh, so, So, really, I think my takeaway from the quarter was that they're doing a lot of really good things. I mean, there's a reason why the stock spiked on this release. I think, generally speaking, you have to be pretty optimistic. What's your take, Matt?
1: Yeah, uh this quarter in my mind was all about Venmo. Um you mentioned payment volume was up 24%, pa- Venmo's payment volume was up 78%. Yep. So that's really what's driving uh PayPal higher and not only that but they we mentioned in uh, an episode a week or two ago that they were they're trying to start to monetize Venmo and they announced that one in four members can be monetized right now. Um, and that's up from i think 17% last quarter and much less than that last year so not only is venmo growing but they're finally they finally think they could turn it into a significant revenue stream which is a lot sooner than anyone really thought that was going to happen is my kind of my takeaway on this quarter?
0: Yeah, I think I, w- I was really looking for any and all language regarding Venmo that I could find. I think you're right. That's that's the forward looking picture with this company. And I think it's worth noting. We talk a lot about Venmo. You and I spoke uh, last week about the the fee change on the instant uh, on the instant uh, access side of the business, and we have to kind of keep an eye on how consumers are going to feel about that ultimately. Uh, I, I mean, for me, it was worth noting that while the results for Venmo were good. $17 billion of that $143 billion was through the Venmo network, which was significant. They said that 24% of users are now participating in a monetizable action. That's all great news. But I think what could get lost in the conversation is the fact that PayPal, on its own, sans Venmo, is still doing a really good job. So, I, I think, to me, as an investor, that's that's an even better outlook, really, because you're looking at not only the power of the PayPal platform, but also the Venmo platform. Uh, other platforms like Zoom, for example, I mean, these guys have a lot of different ways to make it work. And, and from an investor's perspective, that's, that's a really attractive uh, part of this business.
1: Yeah, definitely. PayPal's growing really well on its own, which is impressive considering how big PayPal is and I mean, PayPal has become just kind of part of our language, like PayPal me. Um, everybody uses PayPal, it seems, but they're somehow still growing very, very rapidly.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to hang on to my shares, Matt. I'm going to keep my Square shares, too. And probably, like we say every week, if we can shut up for long enough, I'm sure we probably would, would both add to our positions. But maybe after earnings season uh, dies down, we'll have a chance. Uh, let's jump into American Express real quick. You took a look at the quarter there. What stood out to you? Uh,
1: a lot. Um, American Express, uh, as frequent listeners know, is the one that I'm always trying to get Jason to include in his <laughs> war on cash basket. Um, but American Express is looking really good. They're taking advantage of this booming economy and consumer spending preferences. Uh, 16% year-over-year loan growth was what really stood out to me. Um, they, they grew their revenue by 10% year-over-year. They grew revenue by 10%. They grew expenses by only 8%. And anytime you grow your revenue faster than you're growing expenses in banking is a really good thing. Um, they raised their full year forecast, which surprised a lot of people because they're still kind of in a lot of minds recovering from losing their Costco partnership, which they've now made up for and then some. Um, global consumer revenue was up 15% year over year. And in speaking of PayPal and Venmo. Along with their earnings announcement, they announced that they were entering into a partnership with PayPal and Venmo, where people can pay their Amex bills directly through Venmo platform um, and send payments through their via Amex through their PayPal Venmo platforms. So, this should be an, another exciting revenue driver coming soon. Um, and not only this, Amex's delinquency rate and charge-off rates, which were already very low in terms of the credit card industry to begin with, are looking even better. So, not only are they growing loans at a double-digit rate year-over-year, year, they're doing so in what looks to be a, a very responsible risk management scenario.
0: Yeah, and one one thing I did notice, too, was that it looks like they've updated their rewards program to, to become a little bit more enticing, compete a little bit more, because that's what these card companies ultimately have to do, whether it's Visa or MasterCard or American Express. They need to give customers incentives to use the cards, and and one of the biggest incentives you you can throw out there is a rewards program. And I, and I think that when you look across the spectrum, there, American Express has always had a very compelling rewards program. And I and I speak to this as a cardholder of ten years. I don't own the stock, but I am I am a cardholder, and, and I I'm not going to get rid of that card. Uh, I don't think ever. It's been it's been a great one to have. And and again, I I think it does uh, always deserve honorable honorable. Mentions. For the war on cash basket, because it was right. It was just on the outside looking in. But hey, who's to say we can't change that basket and add a little bit to it? Maybe we'll do that in 2019, Matt. Uh, If if MX keeps growing like this, it'd be tough not to. (laughs) Okay, well, let's take a look here, real quick, at Travelers. Everybody knows the red umbrella. Travelers insurance earnings came out. And, uh, you know, I made the joke last week, uh, Matt, for, for listeners who don't know, I actually moved up here and took the job at The Fool in 2010, and the job that I left was with Travelers Insurance. So, I worked with Travelers for a year. Uh, and it was it was a, a good job. It offered me a lot of opportunity to move up in the company. but I made the joke that when I left, the stock was somewhere around fifty dollars. now it's around one twenty five. it had peaked around one fifty. But the bottom line was I felt like I left the company in really good shape. And of course, that was a joke because <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with anything. Uh, but I do think this is a very good business, and I'm surprised it's always, flown under the radar of of our services here because the fact of the matter is if you invested in travelers a decade ago and you held on to those shares you would be extremely happy and i think that that is because the company is very focused on making sure they do right by their customers uh, I, when i was there they had a very uh core their core philosophy was pay what we owe and let's move on they tried to reduce and eliminate as many of those frictional costs uh, as possible when it comes to insurance and one of the big ones is subrogation when you have claims that are disputed and they go further down the line to uh, lawyers and insurance companies battling each other so so to me uh, you know that's a one two punch there that that makes it pretty compelling uh, from the investor's perspective net premiums grew 6% uh, the the combined ratio is, is still performing very well uh, this year. The the combined the the underlying combined ratio is ninety three percent. We always like to see that low number under one hundred. That means they're writing good business. Uh, so to me, there were a lot of good reasons to uh, be optimistic about travelers, and I think investors and travelers today could could feel comfortable holding those shares, knowing this is a well run business that should continue to perform well for some time to come, uh, and then also. I'll give one more look here to a company I follow, Ameris Bancor. Uh, Ameris is a small little bank in uh, Moultrie, Georgia. It's actually a part of that uh, small business, big investments basket that I put out recently. It's just a you know a two billion dollar market cap. But I found it back in 2011, right at the peak of the financial crisis. And I mean, you were a small cap bank in Georgia. That was basically ground zero. And I don't think a lot of people gave them a chance to survive. But I think the FDIC found that this was a very well run bank and decided to use them as a partner in helping them roll up some of those failed institutions. So, really, it's been a a total asset story. It's been a story about assets and about deposits. And and Ameris has continued to grow that asset base and that deposit base. And that deposit base is is really top of mind for them in the coming years. Uh, The efficiency ratio continues to improve 60% last year, down to 54% this year, another ratio we like to see uh, on the lower side. They are still assessing the potential for some loan losses from Hurricane Michael, uh, which did roll right through that part of the country. But all in all, uh, still performing very well. Uh, very encouraged with what Ameris is doing and uh, what the future holds for them. One more here, Matt. Uh, Synchrony, uh, perhaps a name that not everybody is familiar with, but but Synchrony is—they they have a history of PayPal too. Tell me what you what you saw in their most recent quarter.
1: Well, in my mind, we're saving the best for last year. I'm a big fan of Synchrony. I often refer to them as the biggest credit card company people have never heard of. (laughs) Um, Their their core business is store credit cards. Um, If you have a credit account through a store credit card through, say, Amazon, it's a Synchrony card. Um, My furniture I bought at Rooms to Go was on a Synchrony card that was offering zero percent financing. So they have a pretty broad reach. They've dozens and dozens of retailers issue their credit cards through Synchrony. Synchrony is really just firing on all cylinders right now. Um, Store credit cards are a very lucrative business if they're done correctly. They charge higher interest rates than typical credit cards. Store credit cards tend to be in the 25 to 30% interest rate range, whereas regular credit cards average about 17% right now. So while they have higher delinquency and charge off rates, it's more than made up for by the additional interest income. Just to kind of give you. Just a number from their recent quarter. Synchrony's net interest margin is about sixteen and a half percent. Wow, that's that's what the average credit card charges altogether before expenses and charge-offs and things like that. So Synchrony's doing a very good job of risk management, which is producing some pretty impressive margins. They're also quietly growing their le- their banking platform. Um, they're becoming one of the biggest online savings banks because they offer. Higher interest rates they don't have a branch network so they can pass on some of the savings to consumers in the form of high interest savings and in CD accounts so they're not only are they growing their business very quickly they're funding it with now low-cost deposits as opposed to borrowed money so their business is looking good they have a bunch of positive tailwinds I actually just met with synchrony's leadership team here this morning that was my first money 2020 meeting at 7:15 in the morning, so we got it started off with a bang. Um, but they they brought up a bunch of really good points that are going to be long term tailwinds for the company. Um, the care credit product, which is issued at a lot of physicians and veterinarians' offices, things like that, it's supposed to be a healthcare credit card, is a synchrony product, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have noticed that over the past couple of years, more and more healthcare costs are being shifted onto the consumer. So. Whether we like that or not, um, it's a big tailwind for this, the Care Credit product, which offers people a very low cost way to finance their healthcare expenses. The uh, Care Credit is becoming a bigger and bigger part of Synchrony's bottom line every quarter and should continue to do so. And they're also investing very heavily in technology, improving the customer experience, uh, figuring out how different products work together. They're just recently rolling out their home card, which is their kind of pairing all of their home-oriented retailers that issue Synchrony cards into one. Uh, Same with AutoCard. They're issuing a new credit card you could buy, say, gas, go to an auto parts retailer, anything you need for your your car, kind of combining onto one store credit card product. So, they have a lot going for them. Their quarter was very impressive. Uh, 14% year-over-year loan growth, 14% deposit growth. They're buying back shares at a breathtaking pace. I want to say they bought back—they bought back almost a billion dollars of shares just during the third quarter. Wow! Which is which is about four percent of their total in one quarter. So they're taking advantage of this. The, um, they lost a key partnership recently. Uh, unfortunately, they lost their Walmart partnership. But if they're growing at a fourteen percent rate, they're—they're going to more than make up for that lost revenue in no time. So they're taking a great advantage of their depressed valuation. They're running a very efficient business. 31% efficiency ratio is almost is unheard of in banking, even for low-cost internet banks. That's very impressive. Um, and they're just making some really smart moves and great margins, great profitability, and I'm excited to see where they go from here.
0: Okay. Well, investors, if you haven't heard of Synchrony, or if you've never looked into it, it sounds like, based on uh, what Matt's told us here, get it on your radar, Synchrony. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Okay, let's talk about Yeah, I know that
1: was long, but That's okay. I I mean, it sounded like like a lot of
0: good stuff, so, hey, (laughs) listeners should only benefit from that. Um, Let's take a look at Ultra Fica, we mentioned at the beginning of this of this uh, show here. Now, you know, Matt, over the weekend I got. Speaking of American Express, one of the things I get with American Express is every quarter they send me my. Free credit report, you know, and I get this, and I can look through to dispute any problems or anything. But it gives me my FICO score, and it always makes me feel good because I take good care of my credit score. My FICO score is still good, so I'm going to sleep at night, and I'm feeling nice and nice and safe and comfy in my home, knowing that that the bank is going to keep lending me that money because I've got a good uh, FICO score. And then I wake up and I read about this ultra FICO score, and now I'm getting a little bit concerned because this this sort of piggybacks on the conversation we had last week. In regard to the return of zero-down subprime mortgages, and, and essentially, Ultra FICO, Fair Isaac, the company that that created and uses the FICO credit score, is going to roll out this new scoring system in early 2019. That essentially factors in how consumers manage the cash in their checking, savings, and money market accounts. So it's basically another way for them to measure a, 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 an individual's particular credit risk. In in the whole Idea behind this, it's not to make sure that they are lending to the best possible borrowers. What they're trying to do is expand the pool of borrowers and give more credit to more people to grow that that opportunity to lend to more people. Now, I can't help but feel like maybe between last week's story on on the subprime mortgages and this week's ultra FICO score, I, you know, I'm a little bit. Skeptical at first glance that this is a good idea, you uh, said that you're going to be speaking with these good people out there this week. Tell me a little bit about what uh, what you what you think about this Ultra FICO score.
1: Well, it makes sense to a certain degree. When you go to open a checking account, they run a credit check on you, so it's a product that you need you know good credit to get. Responsible. you need to use your checking account responsibly to keep it open. So it is somewhat a predictor of responsible financial behavior. But at the same time, this is kind of being used as a backup FICO score. If if you go to apply for a loan, here's the idea. If you go to apply for, say, a mortgage, they run your FICO score and say, oh, your score is too low, you don't qualify for a mortgage. You could say to this lender, if they give you the option, okay, now check my ultra FICO score, which would take into account, you know, if you've had a checking account open for a long time with no overdrafts, no defaults, it would take that into account and potentially raise your score and allow you to qualify for a lending product that you otherwise wouldn't. So, it makes sense to a degree, but I, like you said, I am skeptical. There's a reason that people with low FICO scores don't qualify for loans. It's because they generally don't have a very strong history of financial responsibility for one reason or another. So. I'm approaching this with caution. I'm meeting with FICO CEO, as you said, tomorrow morning. I definitely have a list of questions written down for him. Um, And I'm curious to hear what they say about it in more detail and kind of the rationale behind it, which I will definitely be glad to share with our listeners next week, whatever I take out of that meeting. But for the time being, I'm approaching this with caution. Um, I like the FICO score system the way it is, (laughs) simply put. I think it does a very good job of predicting consumer financial behavior. Seems so this like seems it. more like a way to just, you know, boost banks' lending pools a little bit more.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I guess uh, bottom line is I'm not going to change what I'm doing, and I think I'll uh, I'll dance with what I've got because it seems to be working so far. Uh, and as we said at the top of the show, Matt, you are on location this week in Las Vegas at the Money 2020 show. I know you get a chance to to go to this show every year and look forward to interviewing CEOs and finding out what's going on in the world of of finance and tech. Tell us a little bit about what you have coming up here this week and what our listeners can look forward to next Monday.
1: Well, I mentioned I have a uh, the FICO CEO on my agenda for tomorrow. Uh, meeting with some people from Amex later today. Um, I have Green Dot, one of my favorite fintech plays, which I'd love to talk about more next week. Hey, now. Um, yeah. I have a, just to kind of plug a next episode. Um, I have a bunch of good stuff going on tomorrow. We're going to walk the floor, see what's new in the world of fintech. There's over a thousand companies presenting here. So I have my hands full here, and I can't wait to see what the conference has that I'll, have to share with you guys next week.
0: That's great. We'll look forward to connecting on Monday and, and letting our listeners benefit from from everything you've uh, been able to do this week. All right, let's tap into Twitter real quick. And first up, we've got at mp underscore Fitzgerald. He says, if it weren't for the motley fool, I'd never have prioritized having some cash on the side for times like these. Thank you, guys. And Mark, thank you. We appreciate you listening. And he was talking about all that volatility we've seen here the past couple of weeks. Sounded like he had a little dry powder and uh, glad we could help. Mark, thanks for the kind words. At Jenny's Wave 25. In regard to Visa's recent dividend raise, you know, Matt, I was a little bit I was a little bit hard on Visa last week on Market Fuller regarding the dividend raise, simply because I feel like they could they could do a little more. Uh, clearly, more of their money is going towards share repurchases. But Jenny said I reacted the same way after reading about Visa's dividend hike. First thought, sweet. Looked at my holdings. Second thought, what the. 25 cents. I'm trying not to be disappointed about more money. And you know, Jenny, I guess that's the way we got to look at it. It's money in the pocket, right? Uh, final. Uh <laughs> Final final tweet for the week from at Devin G Smith sixteen. He asked a good question here. It's not necessarily so finance related, uh, though we've talked about Facebook on on the show before. He asks, "Is John Oliver's recent episode on uh, last week tonight enough to sell Facebook?" I know it's entertainment, hilarious, but it sure didn't make me proud to be an owner of Facebook shares. Now, Matt, he's talking about that uh, commercial that John Oliver. Uh, recently made for his HBO show. And I'm I'm assuming you got the chance to watch that? I did. You did. Okay, so this is basically the one where it ends up, uh, the ad slogan is, Facebook, we're a toilet. And and they're really he's he's very concerned about the fact that Facebook doesn't have much control over its platform and a lot of fake news is spreading and and, and really the, uh, the 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 impact from from such a from such fake news and in, in lack of control. Uh, I I don't know that I look at something like that as a reason necessarily to sell. Now to be frank, I don't own Facebook shares and I never will own Facebook shares. I'm just not a big fan of the company, not a big fan of the platform. I don't use their stuff. But what what's your take on that? Do you feel like you see something something like this that you would would that be enough reason for you to sell? Well,
1: at the end of the day, like you said, John Oliver's a comedian. But there's a difference between being a socially responsible company and being a good business, and that's kind of what this boils down to. I don't own Facebook shares like just like you, I would never I I, I just am not a big fan of their business. But just because a company is this is is the fake news on Facebook a socially responsible social responsibility issue? Absolutely. Does that in itself make it a bad business and give you a reason to sell the stock? Probably not. Um, dig a little deeper into the fundamentals than just the fake news issue before you sell your shares. Is kind of kind of my feeling on it. John yeah. Oliver is a comedian, a very good one, but <laughs> at the end of the day, that that. Don't don't buy or sell any stock based on what any comedian tells you.
0: Yeah, his spot was really funny. We'll tweet that out on the uh, industry focused Twitter feed later today so you guys can catch it. Uh, all right, uh, Matt, as as we do every week, we're going to wrap up here with one to watch. Again, earnings season is in uh full throttle now. What is your one to watch for the coming week?
1: I'm watching New York Community Bancorp ticker symbol NYCB. They're a regional lender based in New York. Um, their primary business is loaning out on rent-controlled New York apartment buildings. The reason that I'm really interested in what they have to say, they're a business that does not react well to higher interest rates, in contrast to many banks. They have a higher cost of capital. Most of their deposits are interest-paying. Are, are interest paying. Um, and. Their model, just because it, their loan portfolio is mostly these loans on rent-controlled buildings, there's not much demand for those when interest rates start to rise. So they're stuck with this portfolio of loans that were made when interest rates were really low. Their cost of capital starts rising. <laughs> Excuse me. So their stock's just been pummeled lately. Now it pays almost a seven percent dividend. It should be a big, big beneficiary of the bank reform bill because they're right in that $50 billion asset range that got deregulated. So, um, I was a shareholder, I got rid of it a little while ago, but I might jump back in depending depending on when things look like they're going to start to turn around.
0: Okay, great. Um, I'm going to take a look at Markel Insurance, ticker MKL. Uh, They're slated to release earnings on Wednesday the 24th. I'm sure most listeners are familiar with the name Markel. Um, it's it's what we uh, commonly refer to as our baby Berkshire, uh, an insurance company built very much in that same mold. Um, I own shares; very happy to own more if, if I were to get the opportunity to buy at a compelling valuation. Um, and, and it too is is a member of that small business, big investment basket, uh, basket that I put out a little while back. Uh, so I'll be interested to see what Tom Gaynor and company have to say on Wednesday. I'll be Folks, watching that one. Can, I own shares too. Excellent. excellent. Uh, You can remember, always reach out to us uh, via email at industryfocus@fool.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. And hey, while you're at it, let me tell you something here. Why not subscribe to The Motley Fool's newly renovated YouTube channel, where you'll find clips from all of our podcasts, the entire family, Rule Breaker Investing, Industry Focus, Motley Fool Money, Market Foolery, Answers, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, I tell you, Dylan and his team—they've really done a good job building this this thing out. It's really slick. Just go to youtube.com/slash/the_motley_fool, and I think they they put it best on Twitter. It's like podcasts except for your eyes. Uh, so hey, Matt, thanks for joining this this week. Safe travels. Enjoy Vegas. Don't roll out of there flat broke, man. Draw a line somewhere, okay? I'll
1: try. I'm with a colleague who likes to gamble just like I do. So not, neither one of us is the voice of reason. That's always an
0: issue. <laughs> that could get ugly, but we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Definitely. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This week, the show is produced by our man behind the glass, Mr. Steve Broido. Thanks, Steve. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.